standing in Jerusalem, and behind me is the Mount of Olives. Right behind me is the Kidron Valley that runs between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Psalm 125.2 says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And you have to be in Jerusalem to see how, how real that scripture is because Jerusalem is up in the mountains. That's why you always say you go up to, to Jerusalem. That's why many psalms are called psalms of ascent because people sang these psalms as they made pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's elevation, the city itself, is 3,500 feet. But of the mountains that surround Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives behind me is the highest. It's 300 feet higher above the city. So in Jesus' day, this whole mountain behind me would have been totally covered with olive trees, which were mostly burned down and destroyed by the Romans when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But this is a most important place in Scripture. We love visiting the Mount of Olives. So many things in Scripture happened in this amazing place, the Mount of Olives, and also will still yet happen as Jesus returns. So let's remember a few of the things that happened on the Mount of Olives. You might remember that King Solomon had a little problem with women. (laughs) He married 300 wives and had 700 concubines. Or was it the other way around? But these were pagan women who built altars, who had their pagan gods all over this mountain. So when King Josiah came into place as king of Judah, he spent a lot of time tearing down what was called the high places because these pagan gods, their idols, were all over the Mount of Olives. Imagine that. What a travesty. But King Josiah cleaned up the Mount of Olives and took down those gods. Then, if you recall, Ezekiel had a vision, a very, very sad, tragic vision of the glory of the Lord departing, the Shekinah glory that had had lingered over the temple in Jerusalem. It departed from the temple because of the repetitive idolatry of Israel. And it says in Ezekiel 11.23, Ezekiel writes, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. It is the, it's like he didn't want to leave. It's like he lingered there. The Spirit of God did not want to leave his holy city. But because of the idolatry, the glory departed and it went over this mountain behind me. <clears throat> but then Zechariah gives us hope. Because Zechariah prophesies that the glory will return to Jerusalem when Jesus himself descends from heaven and stands upon where? The Mount of Olives. He writes, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north the other half toward the south. And um, a river will flow out and flow down to the Dead Sea and the, the desert will bloom. The desert will come alive. So we're looking forward. That's our hope. We are looking forward to just as the glory departed in Ezekiel's vision, the glory will return right behind me where I'm standing. 
some groups of people believe Jesus is coming back to Independence, Missouri. I'm sorry, he's not coming back there. (laughs) We know exactly where he's coming back. And when we stand on the Mount of Olives, it's just amazing to know that our Lord's feet will literally land there as he comes back to rule and reign. Hallelujah. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Another time that the glory of the Lord entered over the Mount of Olives is when Jesus came into the city in Luke 19. And I'm going to read that passage to you. We call it the triumphal entry. Luke 19. I'm going to start with verse 28. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. Take note of that. Ascending. You always go up to Jerusalem. And it came about that when he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. So right here behind me is, um, if you go over the mountain a little bit, you will come to the little village of Bethany where we know Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus lived, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus would often stay at their home when he was in Jerusalem. So he approached Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet. He said, Go into the village opposite you, in which you will enter, as, as which you, as, <laughs> in which as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. That was actually prophesied in Zechariah 9, that he would ride on a colt. <clears throat> and if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Thus shall you speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. So these were crowds that had followed him everywhere that he went, and they had witnessed many of his miracles. They were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude, those guys were always seeming to tag along and see what was happening. They said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. When I've been up there on the Mount of Olives, they do have a chapel built, and they say this is the chapel where Jesus wept. Well, no one knows exactly where it was, but just imagining him sitting up there on the Mount of Olives, gazing across the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. And when it says Jesus wept, it doesn't mean a tear trickled down his cheek. It means he wept from the depths of his soul. He, he, he wept. He travailed. <clears throat> he cried out saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's um, that's very poignant. It's very, very tragic that Jesus sat there on that Mount of Olives, looked at Jerusalem saying, I am the glory of God embodied. I have come back. The glory of God has returned and you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Interesting how Zechariah prophesied and Jesus fulfilled it to the letter. He chose a donkey instead of a horse. The second time he comes, he's going to be riding a white horse. But as he, as the glory came back this time, he chose a donkey to represent what kind of king he is. He's king of Israel. He's king of the whole world. But he did not come this time, the first time, to take it by force as a conquering king. But he came to go to the cross and to give his life for it. But here's that moment when the glory of God is coming back over the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Ezekiel saw it depart. Now Jesus in person is returning. In this hour, Israel's true king is is arriving, but she did not recognize it. And it did. It brought terrible consequences upon them because just 40 years later, in, in 70 A.D., the temple will be completely destroyed. The city will be burned. The people will be dispersed. And 100,000 Jews will be massacred. And that dispersion will last at least 1,900 years. And the spiritual blindness upon Israel remains until this day. He says, your house remains desolate. It doesn't just mean the temple. It means the people who were supposed to have the indwelling presence of God are are desolate. They're lost. They're blinded to who their king is. How often, you know, we have to think about this ourselves. How often do we miss God? How How often do we miss his glory coming to us? Because we have preconceived ideas of who he's supposed to be, concepts of God. Um, you know, he's supposed to come and overthrow the Romans. He's, the Messiah is supposed to come and establish a, an earthly kingdom. And they missed the very glory of God coming back into their midst. But how often do we miss the humble ways God comes, the, the still small voice, the, the gentleness, the humility, the kindness of God, because we're looking for him to act in some other way. <clears throat> Yes, they call it the triumphal entry, but it ended in tears, didn't it? It ended in Jesus weeping because he was misunderstood and rejected by his own people. So we, we just read that. When he approached, he saw the city and wept over it. He said, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus was there to fulfill what their hearts longed for, but they brought horrible suffering upon themselves because they, he did not match their concept of what their king should be. Well, the next scene that we might remember on the Mount of Olives is what's called the Olivet Discourse. And that's given to us in detail in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21 and in Mark 13. And that conversation is where the disciples asked Jesus, 
What's going to be the sign of your coming? When's the kingdom going to come? And he tells them all about the end of the age and and the um, the signs to watch for. But the time that I want us to look at that is is most on my heart today is um, his final time of prayer on the Mount of Olives, which took place in a garden they called Gethsemane. So we're going to go now to the garden of Gethsemane. There we are. (laughs) We're now in the garden of Gethsemane. It seems that when the Romans burned the Mount of Olives, they left one section. And these trees that I'm standing amongst, I've been here many times, these trees are at least 2,000 years old. So they very well could have been the very trees that Jesus sat amongst as he spent this agonizing night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's really it's really something to be here and imagine what our Lord went through. We like to take people to a place in Nazareth called Nazareth Village. And in Nazareth Village, it's a depiction of what Jewish life would have been like, what Nazareth would have been like when Jesus was growing up there. And one of the things that they do a beautiful job with in Nazareth Village is they show you the complete workings of an oil press. And in the oil press, they have a donkey there. He's going around, taking the the stone and grinding up the olives until they're just, you know, kind of a mash. Then they take the mash and they put it into um, stone blocks that are carved out, you know, like buckets, and then they lower another stone into it and they crush, they crush the mash, they crush it until every drop of oil can be pressed out of those olives, till there isn't a single drop of oil left. And it's a very heavy weight, stone upon stone. Well, Gethsemane, the very word Gethsemane means oil press. Oil press where great pressure is applied to squeeze the life out of the olive. Gethsemane means oil press. And that's exactly what it was for Jesus in this garden. It was the most pressure. It was the most squeezing that any human being has ever gone through in the history of the world. I'm going to read you just a portion of that experience in Matthew 26 that Jesus went through there. Matthew 26, starting with verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? 
Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. This is Jesus' night of agony here in this Garden of Gethsemane. The work of surrender is the hardest work of all. You know, it wasn't going. By the time he went to the cross, he'd already made up his mind. But this night of agony, where he still had a choice to surrender to God's will and not his will, was it's, that's the hardest work of all. So our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, the atonement that took place on the cross, our redemption, our being saved, from sin and the curse. We think about the cross. We think about what Jesus went through on the cross. But here in this garden behind me, here's where the battle was won. It wasn't just the physical pain of crucifixion. When we think about what Jesus did for our atonement, we think about the cross. But here is where he really won the battle within himself. He knew, think of the things he knew that night as he agonized alone while the disciples were over here sleeping. He knew he was going to bear the crushing weight, the oil press of sin and sorrow of billions and billions of people. Think about it when when you sin, how do you feel? You, You feel heavy, right? You feel bad. You feel a weight like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. You feel a weightiness. When Jesus went to the cross, he bore the weight of sin for every single person that has ever lived or will ever live on the earth. And I've tried to find out what that number is, and it's got quite a range. But I I Googled it one day. I said, how many people have ever lived from Adam to, to now? And I came up, I found a number between 108 and 140 billion people. That's, that's beyond imagination. That he would take on the sorrow, the grief, the sickness, the infirmity, the weight of billions and billions of people. He knew that that night in the garden, that that was awaiting him, that crushing At this moment, in the garden that night, Jesus, in his humanity, was very vulnerable. Remember, he wasn't 50% God and 50% human. He was 100% God, but 100% human. And he felt a great vulnerability that night. God, I just don't know if I can do this, Father. I don't know if I can bear it. He felt that to the depths of his soul. As God, he knew he could call 6,000 angels and just stop it right now. 
But as a man, he was like, God, I know this is your will for me. I know that's why I came, but I don't know if I can drink this cup. And one thing he could have used that night was the love and support and prayers of his dearest friends. You know, there was nothing they could do but just be with him and love him and pray for him. But they'd just come from a Passover dinner. They'd had four cups of wine. (laughs) They were sleepy. (laughs) Also, I think sometimes sleep is a way to escape a situation that's just too much. They, They just couldn't face it, so they kind of just escaped and left him alone. But you see, Jesus being left alone, that was part of the crushing. Because scripture says he was forsaken and alone. Remember? Isaiah 53 tells us. <coughs> hang on, let me get there. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 4. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face. Even his own disciples forsook him on that night. Hebrews 12.4, let's go over there. Hebrews 12.4 says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. No, you haven't. I haven't. Because it says, Scripture says that he, in this agony, in this agony that he was going through in this garden, Actually, blood came out of his pores. So Hebrews says here, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood. I've never known such agony. You've never known such agony, but he, he did. We've not known a struggle to this point, but our Lord did. But the thing is, once he entered the full surrender and said, not my will, Father, but yours be done, Peace of mind came. Calm came to him. He said to his disciples, Arise, let's go. Judas is coming to betray me. Let's get this done. He had commitment at that moment. He would not turn back. He went quietly like a lamb to the slaughter. But I don't believe he could have gone quietly and stood before Pilate and endured the crowds mocking and and endured the beatings and everything he went through if he had not had this night to completely and fully surrender. So Gethsemane is one of the most important places on earth because it's the place where Jesus Christ made his decision to go to the cross for you and for me. And once he made that decision, he didn't turn back. He allowed the oil press to crush him. Something tells me that, you know, this was the greatest agony any human being has ever endured. And that is something that makes Jesus very, very personal. Very personal to us. <clears throat> Let me read you another passage from, from Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. 
If you have some idea of Jesus just way up there, you know, at the right hand of God, living it up, or you think of Jesus as a little baby in the manger, uh, a carpenter, a teacher, a miracle worker, dying on the cross, which is something we can't even relate to, raised from the dead and gone back to heaven. We need to also see him here in this garden. Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Folks, we have no concept of what our Lord went through as he offered up prayers to his Father saying, Help me escape the temptation (laughs) to escape this. Help me keep my course. Help me finish what I came for. And this makes Jesus very personal. Because I want to tell you today, whatever pain you go through, whatever temptation, whatever pressure, whatever crushing, he felt it a thousand times more. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with what we're going through. Times a thousand, times 10,000. He's right there in your struggle with you. Because he overcame, you can overcome. Because he resisted the temptation to give up and take the way out, you can resist it. He did it for you. There's nothing you feel, there's nothing you suffer, there's nothing you experience that he cannot understand, he cannot empathize, he cannot feel with you and help you and walk right with you through it. We, we need to love him for this. The disciples couldn't handle it. They just, they just went away and closed their eyes. They couldn't handle it. But we need to draw near to Jesus in his agony and love him for it. Don't avoid that part. Don't just think about all the glorious parts. <laughs> we do love to worship Jesus and think of his glory and he's coming back and rejoice and dance. and That's all awesome. But we also need to draw near. Remember Paul said that he, his highest goal, that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. To know that, you know, he asked the disciples, could you just not be with me for one hour? Could you not know this part of me as well as all the glorious things that I am and that I do? <clears throat> And this just, it makes him so personal. It gives us hope. It encourages us. If Jesus went through such great lengths, such pressing for me, and surrendered to such agony and such injustice and such emotional pain, and he won, there's no battle I can go through that he cannot understand and help me also to surrender and come through my battle. That's what Gethsemane means to me. And I hope it's brought you just a little closer to understanding how much the Lord loves you, how much he was willing to go through, and not only for you, and not only for me, but because of his love for his father, he wanted to get his father's family back. (laughs) 
God didn't intend us to live in this cursed, sin-filled, trash can of a world. God wanted a loving family that he could love and could love him back. And what Jesus went through was not just because of his love for, for me and for you, he also went through it for his love of his father that he could redeem back. He could get his father's family back. He didn't have to suffer for himself. He was without sin. But he did it for you, for me, and for his father. And today, we just have to love him and love him and love him for it. Amen? Amen. We'll see you next time. the promised land. In boundless love and mercy.